0: namu amida butsu come as you are this is a phrase our guest today introduced to me some time ago and has been a mantra that i've repeated almost daily since come as you are show up exactly as you are be present what you are right now is enough as you move forward on your path toward enlightenment welcome to the evolve podcast evolve your body Evolve your mind, evolve your soul, and evolve your tribe. And now, it's time to disrupt. And with that, folks, we want to welcome you to another episode of the Evolve podcast. Joining me from Oberlin, Ohio, Miles. The big O. Welcome. Thank you. Great to see you, you, and I'm you, glad. Thank you, thank I mean, you. this might be one of the last episodes you do with me for uh, for a little while, right? You're going to be down. Yeah. Down.
1: Well, when I do my pre-op tomorrow, I'm going to find out um, my what sitting is. You know, if, if he says, keep it less than 90 degrees, and I might be able to do it. So we'll see. I'll go right. pre-op
0: tomorrow. All right. Yeah. Well, yeah. Keeping our fingers crossed for you as you go get that uh, hip replacement. And, folks, <laughs> somewhere in the mountains of Utah, I am Steve Cutler, and we are really fortunate today uh, to be joined by Christopher Kakio. And I know I just messed that one up. Legal. That was wow. good. Yeah, you did good. <laughs> uh, who is the founder and practice leader of the Salt Lake Buddhist Fellowship and transsectarian uh, Buddhist community in Salt Lake City, Utah? Uh, Christopher's lay minister with the Bright Dawn Center for Oneness Buddhism. Uh, Bright Dawn's ministry program is led by Koyu Kobose Sensei, son of Dharma heir Gyomei Kobose Sensei, a pioneer of American Buddhism. Christopher started at the slbf almost 10 years ago to provide Western Buddhists, a community based Buddhism, where people would feel accepted, just as they are. He wanted to create a place where what someone believes is ultimately no one's business and what brings people together. What unites them is the teaching of Buddha and their shared aspiration to bring healing to a wounded world. Christopher has studied at the Buddhist University of Thailand and has a degree in environmental studies from the University of Utah and a Master's of Fine Arts in Poetry from Antioch University. His poetry and art have been published internationally, and he likes to say that he is an internationally obscure artist. Christopher thanks so much for joining us today it is so great to have you on. Thank you for having me. Yeah we are really honored I think
1: um, I'm going I might I might have to challenge him on our internationally obscure <laughs> part. <laughs> <'Cause> <laughs> I'm pretty internationally obscure
0: too. <laughs> you are definitely obscure hey, no brother. <laughs> <laughs> Brothers in obscurity. Yeah. I love that. Well, we are so excited to have you on. I uh, was introduced to you uh, some time ago as I found the uh, uh, the, the Salt Lake Bud- Buddhist Fellowship and had an opportunity to jump on uh, some from Zoom. I haven't had a chance to be downtown with you uh, yet, but I, uh, I joined. Remotely, a couple of times, and I uh, really just had a great experience. And I thought, I got to, I got to get this guy on the podcast to to talk about it. Uh, so, tell our listeners a little bit about yourself.
2: Well, <laughs> uh, I am a, a kind of a lifelong seeker, and uh, I've been I've been seeking ever since I was a, a young man sitting across the dinner table, five years old, asking the resident priest who came to dinner if he was God, Mm. not understanding how all that stuff worked. And since then, I've just kind of been a searcher, uh, looking not necessarily for God, although that at times was part of my journey, but looking for meaning, looking for connection, looking for something that uh, could give me an answer to the purpose here. Why am I here? What am I doing here? And that journey took me to art, to poetry, to a whole bunch of different belief systems. Um, I spent time as a Latter-day Saint. I served a mission in, uh, in the South. Uh, I spent some time as a, a Sufi mystic for a while and um, ended up finally coming home for me to to the teachings of the buddha Um, i've been exposed to buddhism throughout my life and i think a lot of people are and i think before people settle on buddhism they run into it three or four or five times and then eventually it kind of sticks as a way of life um on that journey finding poetry uh, that really in a lot of ways and still is a lot of ways was my practice and where my heart is it's a way for me to understand life, to understand my interaction with life, to understand um, the wounds of my childhood and the wounds of my adulthood, and to find healing through words and imagery. And I find the same thing in Buddhism. Buddhism is rich in imagery. And the Buddhism that we share at the fellowship is open to everybody and open to all belief systems. But it's not just straightforward, stereotypical mindfulness. It really is a community. We do have ritual um, we talk about uh, a mythic Buddha. We use the imaginal to help us understand our place in the world and we don't shy away from it. Um, the basic stuff, I have two kids. I started as late as a father. Um, I have a boy six and a boy eight. And I am grateful that I waited to be a father into my later years. If I would have been a father in my 20s, they probably would have hated me by now. <laughs> Because <laughs> uh, I did a lot of damage to myself in the 20s. I could imagine what I would have done to, to a family. So that's kind of a nutshell. And awesome. I
1: waited until I was 50. Me too.
2: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> was that what it was? 50 for both of you? Yeah. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I actually said if I don't have a kid like 50, I'm not going to have kids. And it happened.
1: That's how Tiago and play with a little bit of his math because I'd just go take your age and add 50 and you know how old that is <laughs>
3: <laughs> that's great
0: you know you you bring up some really interesting points i want to unpack here for a second um sure. all three of us on here are artists in one way or another uh miles primarily expresses that art through music i've done it through the visual arts over the years uh primarily i know you do visual art and poetry Um, And I love how you talked about that art is a a, a spiritual expression of sorts. It's a way for us to explore the spiritual and to communicate the spiritual because there's many things that are very, very difficult to to express in other ways that are not artistic in nature. Can you talk about um, that uh, spiritual expression and how you've been able to find your voice through art?
2: the well, yeah. So here's a rather interesting thing. So if you look at the kanji over my shoulder, um, I use this in a lot of my, what I would call more spiritual oriented art. Um, and that's Namo Amida Butsu. That's mm-hmm. the kanji translated in, into Japanese. Um, in English, it means homage to Amida Buddha. The way we translate it in our transition, it's come as you are. It's that radical acceptance. So when I first was introduced to this form of Buddhism, which we've kind of retranslated for uh, a more modernist world. Um, I, I struggled with the religion part of it, leaving, you know, being a return missionary and leaving the church and leaving Catholicism and not having a place for a home, not really necessarily even believing in God anymore. Uh, but something still resonated in that idea. And I started using that kanji as um a meditative act in my art. Mm. So the interesting thing is I had an odd relationship with it. I was I'm even today I wouldn't say I'm like a believer um but there's still something there. So in my art I incorporate this this kanji into all kinds of images from the from the natural world to the built world, the built environment. And for me, what it is, it's understanding that relationship of that radical acceptance that's at the heart of being alive in all things, in built environments, in the natural world, um, and then, and then attempting to communicate something. A friend of mine once said, writing poetry is like trying to to pray to God without believing in God. Mm. And sometimes that's what this was for me. and it was really interesting. A lot of people who are very traditional Jodo Shinshu Buddhists uh, who are really religious, love my work. And when they would find out that I'm not Jodo Shinshu, I'm not traditional, that I see it differently, they were all very surprised. So evidently, I'm able to communicate something in this practice that I do that's able to transcend my own, um, maybe um, my, my, my own attempts to to translate something, and and it actually is working for for people, um, especially for traditional people, which I find is even more interesting. Um, And and then all forms of art, music, painting, literature, uh, dance, everything is a mindfulness practice. It is a connection of the embodiment of what we are. And I think sometimes Western Buddhists forget that. And one of the things I try to share in my art is, is that embodiment of the practice. Buddhism is not a practice of just the mind. It's a, it's a practice of the heart, mind, and body. And if you're not working on all three, it's going to be an incomplete um, practice.
0: Yeah. What a beautiful way to put it. I've always believed that uh, internally. It's not something that someone taught me. It was just something that um, the the whole body, mind, soul, the 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 heart, all those different aspects of it, and the physical aspect is is a really important one for me. I found uh, a much greater spiritual connection oftentimes when I was out in nature, just going for a hike, than I did when I was going to church. And much like you, um, I reached a point in life where. After having grown up in the LDS church, I decided that that was not my path. That wasn't my calling in life and I needed to move in a different direction. And so um, I found a lot of comfort through art and through the expression of art, uh, or or, excuse me, through my my spiritual expression uh, coming out in my art. You mentioned before that a lot of people, um, if not everybody, uh, looks for a sense of meaning and purpose and a sense of connection. Why do you think that is?
2: Uh, <laughs> I think we're built that way. Um, ultimately, humans are pack animals. That's our evolution, mm. and that's that's how how we evolved. That's how we we're made. Um, it's it's the it's ten thousand years of of conditioning and our evolution. And sometimes, I I think we try to evolve past something that is not meant to evolve past Mm. Uh, if if you see what's going on we have we have people who are unhoused and it's a horrible problem within our country and at the same time we have countless people are homeless and and homeless has nothing to do whether you're housed or not homelessness is this wandering wandering through life not grounded in anything Um, and, and a lot of times seeing our craving or addictions, whether it's actual substances or, um, material goods or whatever as a grounding, and and they're just imitations of grounding. Mm. And I think we're all longing for that. And I know over the 10 years, when I started the community that people come with that deep longing for belonging and connection and, and, to, to find a way out of this sense of homelessness. And we always say in our community, when new people come and people start you know, attending and becoming part of our community, welcome home. That's it, welcome home. And one of the beautiful things I've noticed over the years, people will go away for years and come back. And it's like, mm. we've never been apart. You know that feeling you have yeah. with some of your best yeah. friends? And, and that's very common within our community because there is that, that sense of home And for somebody who grew up in an incredibly dysfunctional home, I think that also is one of the things that drove me in creating this community was to create a a place where my own healing and other people's healing could happen who came from this dysfunctional upbringing and this this insipid homelessness that many of us suffer from.
0: I like how you broke that apart, that it's just the homelessness has nothing to do
2: with living in a home or not living in a
0: home. It's that connection, right? And Mm -hmm. I know you mentioned earlier that um, people, when they run across Buddhism, uh, you know, three or four different times in life, and that at some point it just stuck with you and uh, it sticks over time. Um, I've experienced that, you know, I mean, that was something that as a very young child, there there were uh, writings, there were teachings that I would run across and something always resonated with me, there was something that just kind of rang true. But after, you know, brushing by it a few times here and there, there was, um, you know, nothing, it it, kind of stuck, but I didn't stick with it, I guess you could say until recently, I've been uh, doing a deeper dive. And feels more like home. Why do you think that is?
2: Well, um, it's pretty simple. When you hear, you hear something that's true for you, you hear what's true for you. I think what happens is for a long time, we have these stories of how things are supposed to be and how things are supposed to look. And as we go through life, and we have these experiences and we, we, we don't learn. <laughs> and eventually mm-hmm. we learn. Yeah. Um we started to resonate more with these different kinds of teachings. As we start to let go of our stories of Buddhism itself or our stories of religion or our stories of ourselves, as we open ourselves up, then we're able to hear things that we weren't necessarily able to hear. We're able to see things we weren't able to see. And again, I think sometimes when we look at things only intellectually, Some things really resonate, some things don't. And I think that's the flavor of the month, the flavor of the year, wherever you're at, person, place, and time. And as you go through more experiences and you see more things, you start to see those things you learn from Buddhism coming up in front of you. Ah, yeah, yeah, there's that thing again. Oh, interesting. And then two years later, oh, wow. Well, the Buddha knew about that. I should have listened to him back then. Um, And then finally, something clicks. Um, And it's different for everybody. Uh, For me, it was finding Shin Buddhism, which would be really a strange place because it's very religious Um, and very traditional Shin Buddhism. Amida Buddha, the mythic Buddha that we talk about, is a salvic Buddha. And and if you take a very surface look at it, it's a salvic Buddha. Um, It's like Jesus Buddha. Hmm. So it would be really funny that that one, that tradition would resonate with me and enough to explore it more and go deeper. Um, so I think it's, it's just our lives. We, we go through our experiences. We start to learn more we start to see more and we're able to, to see what we learn from Buddhism and go, yeah, that in my life, that in my life. Yeah, that happens. Oh, that. Oh yeah. Wow. That's true. And then we start looking more at it. Now one last thing I do want to bring up is I think it's hard for a lot of people for two reasons. One, we, we see religion as a certain thing. Especially if we've left a religion or we left the the religion of our families or we consider ourselves secular and we don't necessarily know how to practice Buddhism in isolation. We can do our meditation. we We can read books, but there's something inside us that calls for more. And that's one of the reasons why I started the foundation is to give people more than the meditation at home, or even in a meditation group, more than just books, a place of community where you could practice together in community. And that community can be a great source of, of learning and great source of strength and a place for you to practice vulnerability, sharing weakness and sharing your strengths.
1: I'd like to get your idea on something you said Um, a long time ago I read um, Approaching the Buddhist Path by the Dalai Lama Mm -hmm. and the one thing that kind of struck me is getting back to that come as you are is it seems like Buddhism is the one religion that allows you to come as you are and you can incorporate Buddhist practices and principles with who you are, whatever your religion is and other religions don't allow you to do that. It's The other religions are you come as we want you to be, and Buddhism <laughs> yeah. allows you to come as you are. Good point. Now, that's just a perception of mind. I just want you to speak on that. Is that a healthy perception that I get that right? Or am and, I just, you know?
2: No, in general, I would say I would say you're right. I would say um, there is something different, but depending on the different traditions in Buddhism. One of the reasons why we say we're transectarian is in Buddhism, there's a whole bunch of Buddhisms. There is no monolithic Buddhism. It would be Mm. more accurate to say there's Buddhisms.
3: Uh,
2: The the Dalai Lama is an incredible teacher, but he's not like the Pope of Buddhism. Mm. Uh, and, And each country would bring something different that was important to their country at the time and integrate it into the teachings of the Buddha and in the expression of Buddhism. Um, So in general, I would say, yes, one of the reasons, since there is no deity, there is no one to be offending. There's no law to be violated. Mm. Uh, And yet at the same time, there is the law of karma in traditional Buddhism. And in some ways, the law of karma can kind of take on the role of of, um, the judgment of God kind of thing. It Mm. doesn't, but it can seem that way. What we we do, and one of the reasons why Jodo Shinshu... Uh, Buddhism really appealed to me is it went past all that and it doesn't care, period, um, about what you've done, where you've been, what you've left undone, what you haven't done today. Um, It does, the story you have about you, the story that other people have about you, all those are just stories. You can come here and be you. And that you will change every day we come together. That you will change from the strong you, the weak you, the confused you, the clear you, the grounded you, the spinning out of control you. And regardless of what that is, you're accepted and you come to the Buddha, the Buddhas, you come to the community and it's okay. Now, it's a hard part of the practice, though, because it's an invitation to come as you are and that's an invitation we give to you but you give it also back mm. to whoever you're with and, and sometimes it's really easy to say okay i'll come as i am but wait a, wait a second you can't come as you are that's no you're really kind of <laughs> bugging me with your come as you are don't do that and that's where the pra- yeah that's where the yeah. practice is that's actually where the hard practice is sitting in your room, meditating for 20 minutes is easy
0: yeah. yeah,
2: in comparison to that. So I like to say in our community, we use all the different st- tools, a toolkit of the Buddha. We do mindfulness meditation. We do reflection, contemplation. We read we read Buddhist books. We can even read Buddhist scriptures. Um, we do community work. We do metta or compassionate um, aspirations. And we just show up. And the thing that's important really is the showing up. I tell our community, even as the practice leader in the sensei, I'm gonna, I'm gonna offend you. I'm gonna disappoint you. Our path is not the path of gurus or masters. Our path is the path of ordinary being trying every day to be a little kinder, a little more patient, a little more understanding, a little more compassionate. And when we fail, we just start again. Yeah. We start again.
0: I love that. And I, I love how you're talking about that, you know, come as you are right now. Because the the weakest part of you right now, or the strongest part of you right now, wherever you're at, come as you are right now. I remember uh, talking coaching a client years ago, who was so sad and so frustrated. And she just, you know, was so uh, dejected, almost where she said, Steve, I can't believe that I've allowed myself to get, you know, this much overweight, and that I have, you know, allowed myself to to do this and I'm so stressed and I just looked at her and I said where you're at right now is fine you've never been here before you've never been this age you've never had all of these responsibilities you've never been exactly where you're at right now so just be here and where you're at is also beautiful I mean yes it's difficult yes you have these things going on but five years from now when you look back you'll look at it and say well that wasn't very difficult and so come as you are is beautiful because some days showing up as you are might mean that you're a little bit grumpy or it might mean that you're a little bit agitated and being real and raw like that i think is critical i also love how you talked about that sitting in the room and meditating for 20 minutes is easy compared to accepting someone else for where they are at I had an opportunity mm. recently to uh be in a yoga class and i've been going to the same yoga class for the past several weeks and there's a gentleman in there that is so loud that it's not just the breathing but it's like ah oh! and he, it's so distracting but i am listening to him and i'm thinking to myself he's doing his best like that's his best and i don't think he's doing it to try and like show uh that he's doing his best he did, like he just genuinely is doing his best uh but i have to remind myself of that because it does distract me from the moment and i think how how often do we run into other people where we look Not at now, them she. and we say i don't want you as you are right now right so right. i think that's a, that's a beautiful piece um sh- Oh, we got kids here. All right, we're good. <laughs> That's all right. I'm I'm curious, um, Christopher. When you talk,
2: uh, they Buddhist they, as and, they are.
0: They did. Yeah, we're accepting that. Yeah,
2: they do. <laughs> One of the things we see in our community too, when people leave, is like you can leave as you are too. It goes both ways. <laughs> I love that. Yeah,
0: come <laughs> as you are and leave as you are. Man, you're not getting the results in life that you want because you're not holding yourself accountable. Getting in better shape, becoming a better father, maintaining the key relationships of your life. It all boils down to accountability. Click the link below. Let's schedule some time together to see if you're right for our coaching group. One of the things that I've, I've read, um, and I read this uh, from a book uh, that the Dalai Lama had written years ago, uh, where they talk a lot about suffering. Why do Buddhists talk about suffering so much?
2: Well, I mean, um, I always would say, if the Buddha had a superpower, his superpower, his name would be Captain Obvious. I uh, <laughs> love um, that.
0: My favorite I, commercial I think, character.
2: I, so you know, I think unfortunately Buddhists get a um, maybe a bad rap of always talking about suffering. Um, suffering is a good place to start because that's how most people come to Buddhism. Mm, they suffer. Sure. Their story isn't working anymore. Their their expectation, the projection onto the world, how the world is supposed to be, the formula they were given from childhood on how life is supposed to be and they're supposed Mm, to be, stopped working. And now they're looking. They're looking for something. And for the most time, we start looking when we're suffering. How many people come to Buddhism, but even religion in general, when they get divorced, when they break up with their lover, when they... They lose their job. They get really sick. They start looking for things when it's not working, when their formula is not working. Yeah. Also, too, and I think this is the most important thing is that everyone, everyone is suffering. Everyone's suffering right now.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: I'm suffering right now. I'm also, I also feel joy right now. They're not mutually exclusive. Yeah, But here's the thing. We think other people are doing so much better than we are. They got their shit together. They know what they're doing. Why can't I be like them? The yeah. problem is we don't realize and we don't know that they're suffering too. and And that it's okay. It's okay to be screwed up. It's okay to be, what I like to say, beautifully broken. There's nothing wrong with it. It's amazing. You're amazing in your brokenness because guess what you've been trying to figure shit out and that's one of the reasons why the shit got broken so it's like embracing this instead of saying well i i i no i am not broken i'm strong i can handle this i can do anything well guess what no you can't yeah and 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 one other one other thing is that we're all deluded i tell everybody in our community you're not awake i'm not awake we practice together in our aspiration to be awake, but don't start setting yourself up as more awake than somebody else, less awake than somebody else. Just come as you are, just be present, just show up, share this unrepeatable life with me, with him, with her, with each other, and let's enjoy our company and our desire to learn and to help.
0: Say that again. How did you put that? That just, something. The unrepeatable, what was that
2: that you just unrepeatable said? Unrepeatable life.
0: That is so Let's cool. Let's share
2: this. Um, yeah, <laughs> oh, that's from shit. um Row of a teacher named Tetsu Uno, who was a right. Jodo Shinshu minister. And he wrote a book called River of Fire, River of Water. And I picked up that book numerous times at Sam Weller's bookstore. No, Ken yeah. Sanders. Ken yeah. Sanders bookstore. and both of those bookstores. Book. Yep. Yeah, yeah. And then I picked it up like three times and the fourth time I go, why not? And the book changed my life and the book was part of the origin of our community. So it's also changed the lives of other people by picking up that one book one day in a used bookstore in downtown Salt Lake city.
0: That's beautiful. Share this unrepeatable life with us right now. Um, And you're referencing something that I think I, I, intentionally or not, I grew up with, um, not necessarily from my parents or anybody in particular, just I think growing up in a uh, very religious culture and in a religious town and state, this idea that you're supposed to be something and that you are supposed to act a certain way and that you are supposed to look a certain way, it puts a lot of pressure on the psyche. And then when you wake up one day and say, but that's not me. Um, there's a huge crisis. And when we reference back to the concept of suffering, I remember going through significant amount of suffering when I woke up one day and said, I'm not living in integrity for myself. My, my thoughts, words, beliefs, actions, they're not integrated. And so I asked myself, well, what does that mean? And the answer was, I have to make a change. Well, what does that change? And the change was to leave a faith, leave a religion that I had been a part of for a really long time because I was supposed to be there, but it just wasn't in line with what my beliefs were. And I thought that that would relieve a significant amount of suffering. And instead it created more suffering for a lot of years. Um, because you know, anybody that's left a very tight knit community can tell you that, uh, you're not accepted. You're not loved. You are not, there is no compassion there. Um, you know, the stuff that was said about me, my wife, the, uh, it just, it was, there was a significant amount of suffering. Now I will say that after having gone through that, I've come out on the other side of that particular suffering with a great deal of empathy and compassion, but I absolutely love what you're talking about relative to show up, be as you are rather than what you think you're supposed to be. How do people make that first step? If somebody's listening to this podcast and they say, look, I know that I'm full of shit. I know that I'm showing up as what mom expected me to be or what my boss expects me to be. How does somebody start to break through and just show up? <laughs>
2: That's the thousand dollar, million dollar question, isn't it? Yeah, right? Uh, yeah. Um but I think it, it basically, when I started the fellowship, the idea was um, show up, come to a community or find a community like ours. I mean, it, it physically show up, it physically show up. And, yeah. and it, it's, it, it's a challenge to post COVID and, and Zoom and all this stuff. But there is, I mean, it can work and it did work virtually during the pandemic, but it's different. Sure. Um, one, one of the things we say when we do, when we start every gathering, we say, help us learn that there is nowhere to go, there is nothing to do, and there's no one to be. Mm. That's our mantra. Nowhere to uh, go, nothing to do, no one to be.
1: I'm smiling because I have um, this list of 10 things to allow me to get deeper into my meditation. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. yeah. And just before, number nine is... We, we gotta live here, and number ten is there's no place else to go. And no place else,
2: else to do. <laughs> no. Yeah. And, and and on another level too, going back to those stories, and one of the things that that Eastern teachers have never understood about Western students is shame and self hatred.
3: Yeah, yeah.
2: It's just something that doesn't really happen in, in the East because the rugged individualism that has become our pathological obsession Mm. um, has really done a lot of psychic damage. So we deal with a lot of this. So nowhere to go, nothing to do, nothing to be. Those three things are the things we do to be accepted, to be loved, to be seen, to be heard. These are the things we're constantly negotiating. If I do these things, if I have something to do, if I have somewhere to go, if I can pretend to be somebody, now I'll be loved, now I'll be accepted, And all those things are unnecessary because as you are now, you're accepted as you are now. The very fact that you exist is a miracle. Yes. I mean, if you just think of the the chance that your grandfather and your great-grandfather, your great-great-grandmother, your great-great-great-great-grandmother, and your great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandmother fell in love, they could have taken a left or a right. Yeah. They could have been sick on a Tuesday and never met each other and you would not <laughs> exist. That is amazing that you even exist. Yeah. And, and, and the way we teach it is that Amida Buddha just simply represents that absolute acceptance and that value you valuing you as your inherent worth because you exist. One of the things I like to say is Amida Buddha the image of Amita Buddha, the representation of Amita Buddha, loves you, accepts you in spite of any good you have done. Beautiful. Because we do good most of the time to earn something, yep. and, and this this earning, this earning and deserving, and this 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 idea of economic exchange that we lay over everything is really screwing us up. When the majority of our existence is a gift economy. As one Christian minister once said, your life is more gift than accomplishment. And I would say the majority of our life is gift versus accomplishment, because we couldn't have done it without each other. I can pull myself up by my bootstraps, but somebody's got to make the bootstraps. And that's (laughs) everything else from the natural world to the people in my life, my teachers, my friends, my enemies, everybody I've learned from and have made me who I am.
0: I love that somebody's had to made the bootstraps. I've never heard that before. I want to come back to this idea of shame and self hatred. One of the things I learned um, some time ago is Buddhists, in particular, don't think of sin in the same way that the Judeo Christian community does. Um, you know, and and I I believe in doing uh, in with this different paradigm or this different perspective, it eliminates a significant amount of shame and self hatred. Um, I, I run into this a lot as a coach and as somebody who's out lecturing, uh, doing leadership coaching and training, um, even in the business sense, right? If I'm lecturing to a group of leaders, and these are people who uh, have an opportunity to make an impact on other people's lives, they still live in this significant shame and self-hatred, um, overly critical mind, uh, torture. Can you talk a little bit about the difference between Buddhist philosophy relative to sin and what the Judeo-Christian uh, philosophy is?
2: Well, the two the two major differences is that in a Judeo-Christian idea is a sin, at least in the traditional sense, is violating a law of God. Yeah. So you're you're separating yourself from God by a certain action, behavior, or or thought. Um. In some christian circles they don't define sin as evil they define sin as missing the mark which is a sure. lot more holistic but you don't run across that very much buddhism doesn't look at sin as like some inherent evil but it looks at it as it is ignorance that we do certain things out of ignorance and because of that ignorance we we reap the results of it so i for many people they did not know that smoking was bad for you Mm. and then they died well that karma that's ignorance they they didn't know um in a buddhist teaching we would say, if you know smoking is going to kill you and you still smoke well then there's going to be some karmic consequences are the buddha's going to kick you out of buddhist heaven (laughs) no you're going to die from lung cancer That's your karmic consequences. Wow. So, in in Buddhism, there's this idea of karmic consequences. And I like to look at karma in some ways like cause and effect, although it's not a direct correlation of cause and effect. I think for an everyday Buddhist, it's a good way to look at it. There's skillful actions and there are unskillful actions. If I do the skillful actions, I'm going to have more harmony in my life. I may have more equanimity. I may have an opportunity at more joy. If I do um, unskillful actions I'm going to have more likely suffering in my life if I mean to my children I'm going to reap the consequences of being mean to my children someday it may not be immediate it may be on my deathbed when nobody wants to come see me because I was such an asshole yeah but there are going to be consequences there's also there's also family inherited karma that you have nothing to do with my mother was mentally ill my father didn't know what he was doing and their behavior their action their unskillful actions affected me yeah now was that their fault i don't blame them they didn't know any better but it still affected me what their parents did to them even though it was in ignorance still affected them so when we talk about karma in a buddhist sense we're talking about cause and effect we're talking about All these things have been passed down, these patterns of thought, these habitual ways of being that create suffering. In the judeo Christian sense, it's more that you yourself, your very being is offensive to God. That tends not to happen in Buddhism. I wouldn't say it never happens in Buddhism, but that tends not to happen in Buddhism.
0: Uh, I think that's an important piece when you're, you're, you're talking about um you know the karmic response and the karmic effect that that there are several layers to this right it's not just a direct cause and effect but that there are pieces as you referenced your your parents i think about myself i mean i had a grandfather who was extremely abusive both uh you know verbally and physically to me and what that did for me for a period of time especially as an early father and my quick reaction to things um You know, that was, that then became my karma. I had to figure that out of saying, okay, I'm not going to pass this on. And so the conversations that I've had to have with my kids to say, this is what I did. This is, you know, where I think this came from. Not to say it's okay. I'm drawing a line Mm -hmm. in the sand. This is not okay anymore. Dad is not going to act like this, talk like this, behave like this anymore uh, with you guys. But now I understand it. And so by understanding it, I can move past it. I think that's an important piece because in the typical, uh, I have sinned and I have to take it all on myself and I am the one that has offended God. But then it's almost like Christians say, well, yeah, but you, it's all on you, but it's not now, now you can just put them on Jesus's shoulders. And so it's all on one person. And there was, that just didn't always resonate with me um, to say that I'm the one that caused all of this stuff or that somebody else did but i still have to take it but then if i don't want to take it i can just put it on somebody else i didn't i don't know Mm -hmm. i didn't like that (laughs) i wanted to be able to address those things right um but talk a little bit more though about this shame and self-hatred because i think this is something that lives so deeply in our western society um and far too many people are living these lives of as they say quiet desperation with shame and self-hatred yeah.
2: being the the
0: primary driving force
2: so where where in the hell does it come from i i don't know I mean,
0: yeah.
2: I, I, it's not just religion. I know people who have never sure. been ra- raised religious. Yeah,
3: um,
2: I, I would say that it's a it's a cultural, historic um, dysfunction. That I, I, I would even suggest it's it's part of the effect of modernization, uh, mm-hmm. the disintegration of communities. Uh, the disintegration of the agrarian lifestyle and living close to the land and being connected to life cycles to live in this artificial world that we've created and talk about the glories of, of of innovation which there have been many but culture and we who we evolved to be have not caught up with those changes and we're still struggling with that um shame shame We get messages all the time, every single day, a thousand times a day that we're not good enough. I mean, that's how everything is sold in this country. Yeah. Um, How many images do we see? Garbage in, garbage out. It's, you know, there's so, so much going on. Um, And then a lot of times within our families, shame and guilt is how we're raised. You know, that's how, you know, like you said, passed down through many generations, Mm -hmm. even, even the 10 commandments say the sins of the father shall be passed down three generations. Mm -hmm. We can say that those dysfunctions we do until we break the cycle will be passed down for three generations. So how do we deal with that? How do we, how do we find a way to overcome the shame? And and it's really examining our stories. Um, I like to say the thing that makes us human is not that we're tool users, it's not that we have self referentialness, it's that we story. We're homo narratists. Mm. We have this ability to story everything. And when it comes to story and it comes to our life, we hold our stories so tightly that they start to, 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 um, imprison us and and make us so we're unable to be pliable and open and change. My stories was I was a martyr, and and I had to sacrifice everything to earn love. Mm. And I remember the day I was walking down the street. I was reading some some uh, Campbell Joseph Campbell, and he said one line. He just said the the martyr myth is a myth. It's not real. It's a story. And for whatever reason, right there, I had that wow. aha moment. Wow. And, and everything changed at the moment. Like you said, it got harder in a different way because I had no one to blame now.
3: Yeah, yeah.
2: I'm the one who's so amazing at love. You just don't see how amazing I It was gone. I wasn't <laughs> there anymore. People leave. I was abandoned for a thousand reasons that had nothing to do with me. I learned that we abandoned and we are abandoned. Mm. So when we have this abandonment complex, we have these issues, it's when we start to examine the story, where did that story come from? Why do I even believe that story? Who told me that story? Where did I learn that story? And one of the practices we do in our community is we, call, we talk about the, I don't know mind. And whenever we declare something, I am X, I am Y, you follow it with, but I don't know. And you don't go, well, yes, I do, (laughs) because of X, Y, and Z. You just say, well, I don't know. And, And this story is just a story. And we talk about story a lot, because a lot of this suffering and shame are those projected stories that we've been given, that we've bought hook, line, and sinker, and we've never examined, and we've chosen to believe. We may say, I don't believe in God, but I believe in these stories. And it's about as substantive if we really look at it.
0: Yeah, and it really is. I mean, when you think about what uh, religion as a basic construct is often in in almost all religions there's some sort of text right there's a scripture and the script that we write for ourselves the script that we consistently tell ourselves in this story is i love what you're how you're laying this out let's talk about the stories that we tell ourselves uh they really are the things that over time we believe in fact i think we believe these stories more than we believe the narratives that we find from biblical or other scripture. Mm-hmm. We walk around and we say, I am this way. And then um, our good friend, uh, Todd Sylvester, who's been on the podcast a few times, uh, has always said, whatever follows I am follows you. And so when we say, I am this, we will continue to uh, to live that way. You mentioned before that uh, you know, living a better life um, and living a more uh, enlightened existence is more so about skillful versus unskillful actions and i absolutely love it i can't remember if it was plato or socrates someone said something along the lines that you know a person's happiness is directly to, uh, tied to their skill and ability and as we become more skillful in whatever it is that's causing us pain and suffering so that we don't continue to have that pain and suffering we tend to live a life where we have more abundance and more joy can you talk a little bit more about this concept of skillful versus unskillful actions
2: yeah and i'm going to be a little contradictory here the most skillful action you can do is stop doing shit. ah okay yeah we have a tendency To always feel we have to do something. I have to fix this. I have to do this. I have to do that. There's something I have to do. And one of the most skillful things you can do is stop. Mm. One of the most skillful things you can do is say no. Or I don't know. Um, Because we've been taught that you have to do something. You have to fix it. You have to make it better. You have to transform it. And not that these things are untrue, but we tend to use them in a way just to add more shame and and guilt. Mm. If you've ever been body surfing, when you first get taken by a wave, your instinct is, oh my God, I'm going to drown. I got to swim out of this. And you find the first thing that happens when you do that is you get shoved deeper into the sand and it's harder to escape it. So the thing you would not think to do is just let go. And the thing is, if you let go in the midst of a wave, your natural buoyancy automatically takes you to the top. Mm. I love this, this analogy or metaphor for our lives. Our lives, we have this tendency, especially when we're struggling, I gotta work harder, I gotta work harder, I gotta do more, I gotta keep at this. And we end up just digging ourselves deeper. The Buddha himself was doing aesthetic practice for six years and the traditional story he was fasting so much that he was eating one grain of rice and he was about to die doing this aesthetic practice and six years six years every single day studying with all these different teachers and and getting to the point of death and he realizes I'm going to die if I die this is no good and at that point he gave up everything he was doing and everything he knew Unfortunately, I think most of us, we just die yeah, because we can't imagine doing anything different. And and I think one of the, um, I guess, um, rebellious uh, or act of resistance in a modern world is to say no and to do nothing. And by doing nothing and by sitting in that doing nothing, things start revealing themselves to us because we're so busy. That we can't see a lot of the answers that are right there in front of us
0: yeah it's um, there's a practice that uh, i was taught years ago by one of my uh mentors in art of just sitting and observing nature and there's times where i'll go out i'll take a sketchbook and i will just sit and i may sketch out something that i see in front of me and then i just sit and the longer i sit the more i see um, There's, you know, in in the visual arts, it's the negative space that creates the positive space. It's the, uh, in music, Miles, what is it? It's the space between the notes, right, that creates the notes. It's the pauses in the poetry uh, that really make it uh, resonate. So... Yeah, I can. I, I'm I'm feeling you on that one. Just stopping and uh, getting rid of things. I call myself uh, previously I, I well I guess I still call myself this but I'm a recovering uh, overachiever. Because uh-huh. <laughs> about a year and a half ago, uh, two years ago, I found some old journals and I went back through those journals and I realized that I had a habit of every year Writing down between five to seven different goals at the beginning of the year. And then I looked back and realized that I probably accomplished like one or two of them per year. And so I said, Well, what if I got rid of everything? What if I just really focused on, Hey, I've got one thing that I want to accomplish, and then everything else is just life? You know, it's not like my life is going to fall apart. I know how to eat, I know how to live, I know how to interact with people. And what if I just got rid of everything? And, didn't show up with so many demands and so much pressure and so much self-hatred every time I didn't achieve, what would happen? And that I don't know type question changed me significantly. Mm-hmm. And I've experienced mm-hmm. so much more joy and happiness in the past year and a half as a recovering overachiever. Um, so I, I can I can definitely resonate with you. Um,
1: I want to circle back with something. Um, yeah, you finished. Sure. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. So I want to, because um, the question had come up earlier. Um, what does someone do to find out who they are? And mm-hmm. and 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 I thought, um, especially when it comes from you know, because I used to be still full of shit, and <laughs> I noticed when I stop doing you anything,
0: used to be, and I just. yeah. <laughs> When was this? Like five minutes ago.
2: Yeah,
1: yeah.
0: <laughs> when did when did you change? Well, like
1: right now. Like remember, there's a difference between full of shit and a quarter of shit. Oh I'm yeah, like
0: yeah, a yeah, quarter of shit. Yeah, you're now, slightly okay. But
1: but, th- but three quarters of it, I got rid of.
0: Yeah, good, good, thank but, you.
1: But when I sit alone, it all comes up. Mm. When there's no interaction with other people, and there's no external stimuli, it. It all comes up, like, and I can see it clearly, mm-hmm. and and I kind of embrace it and make it and you know as as my own, or I shouldn't say make it my own, but fully embrace it. Um, I get to see all kinds of things, um, joys, pain, suffering, pleasures, but it all bubbles up, in the midst of silence and solitude.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think one of, the, one of the reasons too, especially if you're focusing on breath, yeah.
1: um,
2: the breath and the body can only be in the present moment. Yeah. <laughs> so when you focus on the breath, breathing in, breathing out, you're in the present moment. As
0: yeah. your mind
2: wanders and you go, you time travel to the past, to the future, whatever. But then when you come back to the breath, you're in the present moment. Yeah. And, and here's the thing, the present moment is amazing. The present moment, um for for like a year or two I was doing haiku as a spiritual practice mm. and it was really it was really teaching me to be in the moment and to see the the profundity of the everyday um right in front of me and and my attention was so into the drama and the stories and the disappointment and, and my expectation of others and myself that I was missing the life in front of me so there is that that being that being still. There's an old Japanese story about an inchworm who's eating his way up, a little inchworm, up the top, up the, to the top of um, one of those bamboo. And if you've ever seen a bamboo before, they're 20, 30 feet tall. So you figure this inchworm climbing up to that stalk. It's gonna take him a hell of a long time to get to the top. So he's eating his way through, eating his way through, and then he just gets exhausted. And he, he stops. And he's sitting in the darkness, thinking about how far he is going to go, and this is going to take him forever. And he's just sitting there, sitting there. And then he notices in the darkness a sliver of light coming from the side of the stalk. Mm-hmm. And then he goes and he eats his way out the side of the bamboo stalk. The only way that inch was able to see the way to freedom, to see the way, to see the light, was to stop and to sit in the darkness. Mm -hmm. We have this tendency, I got to get out of this darkness, I got to get out, I got to go, I got to go, I got to go. And the way to see your way out many times is to stop. And in Zen, the tradition in Zen, just, just sit. Well, what about this master? Just sit. I'm, I'm being overwhelmed by all the things in my life. What should I do? Just sit.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: It can't be that simple. Just sit. Give me something to do. Go bring me that mountain. Mm-hmm. I can't bring you that mountain. Well, I'm giving you something to do. Go do it. Or just sit. Now, it's not that simple. Because people go, well, if I just sit, my brain, my, my brain goes 1,000 miles an hour, and I go crazy, and I go insane. I get that. Some people are really good at meditation. Other people are not. There are other things to do. There's chanting. Mm. If you're not good at chanting, there's journaling, which can be very positive. And what I highly recommend is a gratitude practice. Mm. One of the things that we are under the myth and the delusion of is our lack. We see ourselves lacking. But here's the thing. We are followed and attended by grace every day. The grace of the sun, the grace of six inches of topsoil, the grace of fresh water, the grace of people who were willing to build a road or build our house. Because I guarantee you most of us didn't do that. We are covered by grace by our family and our friends. So we like to think we're independent and I can do this all myself. And I guarantee you if this whole thing collapses, there's going to be about 12 of us who are going to be able to do that. The rest of us are going to be screwed. Yeah. <laughs> Because we are interdependent. We need one another. And in some ways, we need one another more now. And I think the irony is we need each other more now. And we're pushing away from each other. And, and I think that's why a community, an intentional community, is so important right now. Yeah. I think one of the things that will help our country and our society and our neighborhoods and the ills that we are we're dealing with is this kind of intentional community. And it's important for people to learn in our community because our community tends to skew liberal. Mm. And um, there are times when there've been conservative people who've come and have not felt welcome. And, and when we say come as you are, we mean it. And I was telling people, if Donald Trump shows up at the door he's welcome to come in because it's come as you are. Now, if he starts, you know, being mean to people, we'll ask him to leave. But as long as he comes as he is, right. and he's with the community, being being vulnerable and being there, great. Um, and some people have a hard time with that. And they go, "No, it can't be. There can't be exceptions.
3: Right.
2: It has to be come as you are." And again, that's the rub of this: um, come as you are. My my lovely, beautiful mother and and all what we went through, it's come as you are. Mm. Um, this practice has really healed a lot of that rift between me and her, and even me and my father. He still does things that trigger my old narratives and stories, and I just smile and bow and say, Namo Amida Butsu, come as you are, and and embrace it as, as part of my, my practice. Um, but our communities need to identify that which unites us. What you believe religiously or politically is none of of my business. What is it that unites us and brings us together? The care of my community, the care of my neighborhood. And I'm not gonna put labels on it. I care for this patch of grass over here because it's our little park. Let's clean it up, let's water it, let's take care of it. I don't care what you believe about other things. Let's be united in this together. And that's what we try to do in our community. We got people who are atheists and we got people who believe in God. We have people who are conservative and liberal and together we focus on that which unites us and, and, and that which we aspire to. And we focus on that. And I think that's, that's really important. Yeah.
0: I love that. I, I love the whole idea of just continuing to show up as you are and that the body and breath are only in the present moment. Um, you know, I, I had an experience a few years ago when I was uh, traveling the country and I'm doing this, uh, these speaking engagements and consulting. And here I am in the midst of uh, rush hour traffic and I'm in a suit and, you know, dressed up in this professional way. And I'm stuck on my way to go give a lecture in the middle of Denver and the there was something happening i'm not sure what triggered it but for the first time in my life i had whether it's a panic attack or an anxiety attack i don't even know what it which is which but that feeling of From my head to my toes, everything is just tingling and and the anxiousness is building and just this massive panic or anxiety attack and thinking to myself, well, what am I going to do? Where am I going to go? What is going to happen? And I had the most illogical thought as I looked to my right and I could see off in the distance. I don't know how many, um, you know, dozens and dozens of miles away. I could see the mountains, and the mountains have always been a, a source of peace for me because I grew up in Utah. And so I thought, well, I'm just going to get out of the car right now. I'm going to go to the mountains. Um, and then I realized that that's probably not the best thing to do, to leave my rental car sitting there on the highway in Denver, <laughs> Colorado. And I s- paused for a second, and I just said, I am right here right now. And I took a couple of breaths, and the anxiety came down. And I reminded myself, I am right here right now. And I literally put my hand on my chest and I felt my body right there in the car. And then the anxiety went down a little bit more. And I don't know how long it took to pass, but it was one of the most powerful moments that I've ever had in my life relative to coming back to the present moment. And it made me realize how much I was living in the future how much I was worried about the image of showing up on time or early or, you know, all of this bullshit. And it just woke me up to say, you know what, no matter where you're at, that's that, that is where you are. I am right here right now. I am in my body. I'm breathing. And that has been really a mantra that, that stuck with me ever since. And when I find myself, feeling like I've got too many things on my plate or I'm going in too many different directions, that mantra of I am right here, right now, combined with Namu um, Womita Butsu just show up, right? Those two things lately have been um, very powerful to bring me back into, into that present moment. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, I think I, I couldn't agree more with this idea of sitting in the darkness and the importance of that. I think that sitting in the darkness is something that um, Miles and I have talked about this a lot on this podcast, that the darkness is where we find the light and that really in darkness, if you look around, there's a lot of beauty. There's a lot of uh, there, there's colors in what we call darkness that are there that allow us to see further uh, in our life. Um, Christopher, I know we're, we're coming up on our time. And I've got a few other questions that I want to make sure that we get through. Uh, speaking of darkness. Um, what would you say was one of the darkest days of your life? And then what was one of the best days?
2: Uh, kind of funny. there, probably the probably the same day. Mm. Um, Thanksgiving 2013. Um, I was married for uh for about four or five years and with the woman for 10 years we we Uh divorced and broke up and um after that I had spent quite a bit of time alone and I had really never been alone in my life ever before and um it was the most (laughs) valuable and at times hated time of my life um but um I, I had gone through a couple of love affairs. I am uh, a love poet primarily. So I'm very passionate when I mm. fall in love, I fall in love with my whole being and um, I've had a, I've a few failed ones, a few broken hearts and, and I wasn't getting any younger. And, and um, it seemed like this samsaric cycle of, of love loss um, and heartbreak. And um it was the first time in my life that I actually contemplating. I actually called uni at one point to see if they had a bed mm. um, because I, I actually asked for help. And the funny thing is they didn't have any room in the inn, um, which is unfortunate that it's true even more now for people who do need help. So I'm at that point, I'm at that point finally asking and reaching for help and there's no room. So it's Thanksgiving Day, and I'm alone. I don't have any family. Um, I had a few friends that were close, but they were with their family. So I was at um, movie theater, so I could be around a few people. And I don't even remember what movies I watched. I watched two movies because I didn't want to leave because I wanted to be around people. And I felt so alone. and, and and here's why it was the best day. It was the first time I allowed myself to just be sad. Mm-hmm. I didn't try to fix it. I didn't feel like I had to change it. It was as if though my little nine-year-old boy who was abandoned, the young man who lost God and religion, the first marriage, the brokenheartedness, the homelessness, all just were present. It was the first time in my life I didn't try to think it. I didn't try to rationalize it. I didn't try to fix it. I just sat there as the lights came up in the movie theater and felt sad. I just felt it probably for the First time, don't get me wrong. I suffered for so long, but this was the first time I felt sad. I honored my sadness. I saw it. I bowed to it. I see you sadness. And it was in that act, in some ways, that was one of my awakening moments, that act of liberation where I realized and understood the difference of becoming an emotion, being addicted to suffering Mm. and finding a way to free myself. And it takes that ability to not, I didn't, there's nothing to fix. There was nothing to fix can't go back in time. I can't change the way, the way I was raised. I can't cure my mother's mental illness. I can't change all the relationships that didn't work. Can't go in the past. You, today cannot be any different than it is. Couldn't be any better. Couldn't be any worse. It can only be what it is. And in realizing that, I realized I'm just sad. And guess what? It's okay. Mm-hmm. And that changed everything for me.
0: Just radical acceptance. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I think that, you know, it's, it's extremely heartfelt to, to hear that and to know yeah. that. Um, I've played with this idea for the longest because to mix in what you're saying, to mix in with gender. Mm-hmm. You know, men oftentimes skip sad and go right to anger. Mm -hmm. And women oftentimes wallow in sad because it's supposedly unladylike to be angry. Mm. And men oftentimes skip sad because sad feels like you're so vulnerable that you're not doing anything. And anger Mm. feels like you're doing something. Mm
2: -hmm. And sadly hey, is you're vulnerable and you're not doing yeah, anything.
1: Yeah, and, yeah. and, and yeah. It, I went through what you went through in Utah when I mm-hmm. got, you know, I moved to Utah because my ex-wife wanted to go to college there to get her master's. And I was in Utah and thinking I'll be in Utah three or four years. And we got divorced there. And next thing I'm looking up, I'm in this strange state mm-hmm. by myself alone. And it's when I learned to be sad. I just, I wasn't, I had just wallowing It just nothing you can do. And all you do is feel and try mm-hmm. to fix it. So it was really hard feeling, it was heartfelt to hear your story. Yeah, yeah. It's a little similar yeah. to mine is when you accept sadness as an essential component
2: yeah. of being a human being. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no yeah. wallowing, no wallowing, yeah. no drama. No woe is me, no Eeyore. No. It's just, it just is. It just is. It yeah. just, it just it just, you know, people, um, I know some people really hate it. Well, it is what it is. People say that all the time. And a lot of times people see it as a resignation, but I really think it's probably one of the secret teachings of the Buddha.
3: Yeah. Mm.
2: Um, because it it is what it is as an affirmation, um, as an acknowledgement of reality. We have a tendency, the thing that causes our suffering is we argue with reality all the time.
0: Yeah.
2: We're in constant <laughs> arguments with reality. Yeah. And that brings us our suffering. Yeah. The reality may be that I'm, I am I am I am a perpetrator. I need help. Um I live with a perpetrator. I need help. Um, I have anger issues. I need help. Um th- that's the reality of it. The reality is, oh no, I don't need help. No, I'm fine. I got this in control uh what do you mean i'm i'm fine i'm not suffering no not at all not at all not at all we can't argue with reality it's only going to cause you suffering acceptance as my teacher reverend Guillaume kabose teaches acceptance is transcendence acceptance is your freedom it's not a passive acceptance it's an active acceptance you accept the reality of your situation, then you can take action until you do, you're trapped. You're not going to have the freedom you need. Yeah. Yeah, that's beautiful.
1: And Hollywood is a huge perpetuator of that issue of the man is going through so much and somebody says, are you okay? And he's clearly not okay. And he says, I'm fine.
2: (laughs) The strong (laughs) silent type. So often. Yeah. The
1: strong, silent
2: type. Well, and it's interesting, too, because at the same time, on the flip side, um, how, how many strong men um, are victimized? They're, they victimize themselves by their inability to show vulnerability right. or to be honest and authentic. Right. You know, um, what I tell people is you want to be free, stop acting like a victim and accept reality. Accept your situation as it is. Accept yourself as you are, and find a way out. And sometimes, just the fact of accepting when I when I just allow myself to be to be sad, so much lifted up. It's almost like we have all these emotions and things inside ourselves, and we're so busy trying to do something with them, we're suffocating. And the only thing they want is the Great Plains of Kansas, and we're not getting that because we're crushing them. And when we finally just take a breath, let go, give them air, give these feelings and emotions space to be, to be seen, to be heard, to be even loved. Yeah. Then they don't have to stay around anymore. Yeah. They don't have to wait for you. They've been waiting for you to see them since 1977. I don't know, whatever. Yeah. And you've been so busy trying to fix them and make them go away that it's just making them more angry and they're doing whatever they can do to get you to see them. Right. They
0: need to be felt.
1: This is where art becomes, this is where art really becomes important too because I always thought artistic expression, what happens with, with art is, is you talk to someone and you say, no matter what emotion you have, what would you create? if you were an artist
3: mm-hmm.
1: with each emotion and then each emotion becomes almost hyper valuable that mm-hmm. your, your boredom and depression isn't something that you're trying to get rid of that you're trying to use it creatively. What would you paint with the emotional energy of boredom? What would you, what song would you create with the emotional energy of you know depression and all those things and art becomes the bridge to total acceptance Mm. because now you're utilizing this emotion for something to create. Mm.
0: Yeah. And I think all of these, all these feelings, these emotions, I love your story when you're talking about that you finally sat and you felt it because we don't do that enough we don't accept the emotion and then as the old saying goes feelings that are buried alive never die they will continue to come back there's a karmic effect to it they want to be resolved they Mm. want to be felt and resolution oftentimes just means recognition it's a matter of just saying This is what I feel. I don't know who said this years ago to me, but there was a friend, mentor, coach, whatever, that had explained to me this idea that as soon as I start to recognize the negative in my life for what it is, everything else becomes positive. And I remember one time I was talking to to a friend and uh, he said, but if you just sit and recognize what it is right now, It's going to be uncomfortable for a little bit until it's not and you're going to get through this and Mm i i i liken it to when i learned how to uh paraglide years ago my coach was uh teaching me what turbulence is and we've all experienced turbulence if you've flown on an airplane right um and growing up on on a on a lake and in a boat and you know you you experience the waves but you never think oh my gosh I'm going to crash uh when you're out water skiing on a boat right but when you're in an airplane I had this irrational fear that somehow the plane was going to completely drop out of the sky
3: <laughs>
0: when I was paragliding though and I've got this parachute this glider above me and I'm just sitting And these little strings are holding me to this uh, glider and I hit turbulence and it was bumpy and then it wasn't I thought oh shit that's a great metaphor for life when the bumps come (laughs) then they're gone as soon as I just recognize and feel it and think well that made my stomach go or well that that didn't feel so good then it's gone you know, it, it's almost like recognizing the negative in my life and, and being okay with those things, the negative emotions, negative experiences. On the other end, I felt so much better if I didn't push them away,
2: right? Yeah, I think that's a good analogy. I, I, I think one of the things we do in our community to help us bridge that gap is we do open sharing. And when we do open sharing, people can share whatever it is they want to share. Uh, and the most important part is for the community to listen. And to, to listen without judgment and with compassion. Mm. There's no there's no advice, there's no responding. there's no response back. They're simply listening because it's deep listening. And for the person in community, it may be the first time that they've said something. I mean, we've had people share the most intimate things in a communal setting. And you see people weeping and crying, and they see that they can share. Their deepest emotion, and they don't die, they don't disappear. People don't turn away in horror. They they bow, they see them afterwards, they give them hugs. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that's why community is really important because we can do a lot of this work by ourselves. Ultimately, when it comes to saving ourselves, we can only save ourselves. Another person's not gonna save you. But here's the thing, we need a hell of a lot of help along the way. Yeah. And even if that's just somebody by our side, when we come back from our deep journey and in the inner world of ourselves, and we come back, we see a familiar face saying, there you are, welcome home. Yeah, and, and I think that this community practice of all these things we've been talking about can be done solitarily, but there's power when you do it in community and you don't even have to do a lot. It's showing up for somebody, being present for somebody, A stranger, even just being there and go, I see you as you are right now. In itself, is healing and transformative for other people. Yeah, it's
0: that radical acceptance. Mm -hmm. Well, and on that note, folks, it is uh, time for us to wrap up another episode of the Evolve Podcast. Um, Christopher, thank you so much for joining us tonight. I mean, what a yeah, thank you. What an amazing conversation and uh, I hope we can have you come back on because I feel like we could talk for hours about (laughs) literally like miles said earlier just this concept of come as you are we could talk for hours on that and I think that would bring a lot of healing to the world. so for people that want to learn more, that want to be a part of the community, uh, whether they're local to uh, the Salt Lake City area or not, how do they find you and find what, uh, what the community is all about?
2: Uh, so the easiest way is to go to our website at saltlakebuddhist.org. Um, there you'll find links to our Dharma talks and uh, what we call Dharma glimpses. So they can hear actual talks that I've given other people in the community have given uh, on all kinds of topics. Um, and then you can actually meet in person. We've actually moved back to our old space. So that's been a change. We were meeting downtown for a while. We're now meeting back in Mill Creek, a much more intimate space, a space that we have a, a history with. And you're more than welcome to show up in person or on Zoom. So we will be continuing Zoom, even with our going back to in-person for those who do not live locally. Uh, one of our goals is to create an online community for those who do not have a local Buddhist community that they can participate in. Um, and all that can be found on the website under our calendar section. Um, and that'd be the best way to connect with us. We're also on Facebook and Instagram and other places too. So, yeah. But come in person. We would love to see you. And we're big huggers. So, if you need a hug,
0: <laughs> come show on down.
2: Hug. We'll, get, we'll yeah. show up for a hug. We're all about hugging. It's part of our practice
0: and i i need to come in person because like i said i've only attended a few times via zoom just uh from you know scheduling conflicts but uh i'm i'm excited to come in person but at the same time i'm also excited uh because you do uh what is it dharma coffee afterwards you go out for coffee yes. after
2: so, yeah yeah dharma coffee yep. yeah yeah
0: i love i love the idea of that Yep. Well, thanks so much for joining us tonight. And hey, folks, remember that it does take time and consistency to evolve. But first, you have to disrupt. And now it's time for you to get out there and evolve. And evolve. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Evolve podcast. Follow us on your favorite podcast app. And if you haven't done so, please give us a rating. As an independent podcast, it really helps us get more reach. This podcast is part of our mission to help millions of people evolve into the best versions of themselves. Please check out our coaching services at evolve-cast.com or pick up some of our Evolve merch. Until next time, keep evolving.